Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal here is to find exceptional individuals in their fields of study and bring them to you and interview them and learn more. So I have David Diemer. He's a research professor in biomolecular engineering at UC Santa Cruz. We're going to be talking about uh, a topic that is really not well understood, at least by most, the origins of life. So, David, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, just fine. Thanks for the invitation. So what is your, uh, like, what got you interested in figuring out where the origins of life came from? I have a background in biophysics, and a lot of the uh, research in the origin of life has been done by chemists. So it's a little bit of a fresh outlook for me to get into this, which is now probably 30 or 40 years ago that some of the first work got done. Um, During that time, a new discipline called astrobiology sprang up out of nowhere. Uh, This was uh, sponsored by NASA, and that was a very natural place for me to direct some of my research interests. So that happened back in the uh, mid-1990s. So uh, I think my original interest was spurred on a sabbatical that I took in England. I was working with a a scientist named Alec Bangham, who uh, invented a a little composition called liposomes. Liposomes are little lipid vesicles that are used today in drug delivery and as a research tool. And while I was there on sabbatical back in the mid-70s, we began to talk about the original life, which he was interested in. And we realized that uh, nobody had figured out where the membranes or the first life came from. So that was really the start of uh, what uh, has become my career since then. And that is uh, how were membranes involved as life began about 4 billion years ago? Yeah, um, I've heard that some scientists are able to, I guess, have my cells form these uh, perhaps lipid bilayers form spontaneously. What have you, what's been observed uh, in the lab and in nature, too. Yeah, that's really a really good question, and uh, it's fun to answer because I spent the last 30 years uh, working on that question. So if you take a lipid, uh, such as the lipid that is in membranes today, in all life today, uh, what you will discover is that they can be extracted, and they can undergo what's called self-assembly. And this is simply to add water to the lipids that you've extracted, and they spontaneously form little membranous vesicles. And that's what Alec Bangham discovered in 1965 and basically gave rise to a, no, a whole new field of research on uh, which we now call liposomes. So the, the point is that on the early Earth, four billion years ago, there must have been something resembling lipids that could also assemble in the membranes. So I got interested in that question and began to think about meteorites. And uh, most people don't realize it, but meteorites bring to Earth organic compounds that uh, are, in fact, older than the Earth. They were made in the so-called molecular cloud that gave rise to the uh, sun and all the planets surrounding the sun. 
And on the dust particles in these molecular clouds, there are organic compounds that gather into what are now asteroids. Asteroids keep crashing into each other and they uh, bump off pieces that come to the Earth. So we literally have pieces of asteroids falling into the Earth atmosphere every day. Uh, in a meteorite shower, you, know, you can see some of these. That, those are mostly from comets, by the way. That'd be cometary dust. But asteroids occasionally will give a big chunk of, uh, of uh, stony material that we now call meteorites. Okay, so once meteorites, well, meteorites are hitting all the time, but uh, when there was no life on early Earth, is the theory that meteorites hit, organic molecules were seeded in the Earth's oceans, they spontaneously formed you know, let's say my cells, and then if so, was that the origin of life, and what was the progression from there? Yeah, it's a progression. That wasn't the origin of life. It was the origin of one small piece of life, which is the membrane that surrounds all cells. So as you said, uh, this uh, these meteoritic uh, materials were falling into the ocean, but uh, they would tend to get buried there and just disappear and form a very dilute solution. But if they formed, if they fell on land masses, and this is what is new about what we're proposing, if that meteoritic stuff fell on land, it would get, it would accumulate on land and uh, get flushed down into little hot water pools, just as occurs today in Hawaii and in Iceland and other volcanic regions on the Earth today. So back four billion years ago, here's this meteoritic organics coming down. And uh, what I did with uh, one of these meteorites uh, called the Murchison meteorite it was to see whether there was anything in it that could form membranes. So back in the mid-1980s, I got a chunk of the Murchison meteorite that had fallen in Australia in 1969. And it had about 1% of the mass in the form of uh, organic compounds. So I extracted some of that, put it under the microscope, did my biophysical tricks to it, and I was amazed to see little membranous vesicles grow out of the stuff that was 5 billion years old, or even older, in fact. And uh, after all that time, it was still able to do this self-assembly process and make microscopic bubbles that we call liposomes. So what happens, at least in the lab setting, once uh, these these small membranes are formed, these liposomes, like what, what tends to be inside them? Anything? And... When they form, do they open back up to the environment or they stay closed for a period of time? More good questions. The thing is that uh, the, these are just membranes and unless they have something inside, they're not on the pathway to life. They're just like little soap bubbles, microscopic soap bubbles. So there's got to be some way to get stuff inside these membranes as a step toward life. So that's what we're doing now. Uh, what is in cells today that is makes them alive, are proteins and nucleic acids. Those are the major polymers of life today. There had to be a, an origin of these polymers uh, on the early Earth, otherwise life could not have begun. So how can you make a polymer on the early Earth? You start with monomers. Mono means single, poly means many. So monomers attach together and form polymers. The amino acids that we use today form proteins when they polymerize. Then there's another monomer called mononucleotides that form nucleic acids when they polymerize. So the problem then is how to get proteins and nucleic acids 
out of this mass of material that's been raining down on the Earth some four billion years ago. And here's what we've been doing. We think that life did not begin in the ocean, that there just wasn't enough stuff down there to uh, turn into something that would be a step toward the uh, first forms of life. We think that it's more likely that on volcanic land masses, all of this meteoritic organics and other sort of inputs of organic materials, not just meteorites, there's other ways to make uh, uh, these organic compounds on the earth. All of this would accumulate in hot little puddles. Darwin called these warm little ponds. And we go back to his, uh, his uh, little letter he wrote to a friend of his, Joseph Hooker, back in the 1870s and said, maybe life could begin in a warm little pond. And what we're doing is following up Darwin's intuition and we're saying, well, maybe life could begin in a hot little puddle that can undergo evaporation and refilling and evaporation and refilling literally indefinite numbers of cycles of wetting and drying. And under those conditions in the laboratory, we can make amino acids turn into short little protein-like molecules called peptides, and we can make nucleotides turn into nucleic acids just by putting this stuff through wet-dry cycles. But how would you get the, um, the nucleotides and the peptides inside of these, uh, these liposomes? See hey, that now, happening in the lab? Sure, let me, let me tell you how that happens. Just imagine now that you're a microscopic uh, character looking down as this stuff evaporates. So you've got in the solution, a dilute solution of amino acids that were, that very likely were, uh, came, came to earth on meteoritic infall. And you also have nucleotides there in solution. And nucleotides, we don't know yet for sure how they could have been formed, but they are the small molecules. So. Uh, that's just a gap in our understanding, but we assume that there must have been a source of nucleotides. So we also have in this mix a lipid-like molecule such as those that I extracted from a meteorite all, you know, 20, 30 years ago now. So we have those three compounds all in a dilute solution. Now let's let the solution evaporate. As it evaporates, these things get much more concentrated. And finally, they are forming a film of extremely concentrated material on the surfaces of minerals that, uh, that line this uh, hot little puddle that we're working with. In that film of extremely concentrated uh, organic compounds, reactions begin to occur. And what does occur is these polymerization reactions that we've been uh, talking about. The monomers begin to form polymers, the amino acids begin to form peptides, and the nucleotides begin to form nucleic acids. So this is all driven by the fact that they're extremely concentrated and they're pretty hot, you know, near boiling water temperature. And this is a process in which a reaction that we call condensation can occur. And that's what produces the polymers. But keep in mind that the lipids are there as well. So the polymers, when water comes back, it gets rained on or there's a geyser activity or a hot spring sort of a fluctuates in the water level. Uh, the water comes back and all of those lipids surround the polymers that have been synthesized. And that's what we can see happening in the laboratory. We've done that uh, many, many times. Others have repeated it. 
And more recently, we have tested whether that can happen in an actual hot spring environment. Uh, just uh, last month in February, we were down in New Zealand in the hot springs there, and we put in these same polymers, uh, excuse me, the same monomers and the same lipids into a hot spring and let it go through multiple wet-dry cycles. And we were able to see polymers forming, and we could see uh, what we call protocells under the microscope. The lipids that we added had surrounded the polymers and made a beautiful little a microscopic thing that is a step toward life. These aren't alive, but it is a step toward life. Yeah, no, that's interesting. All right. So when these uh, these protomolecules form or when the, the lipids surround the, uh, the peptides and other stuff, do the lipids have channels through them or do they appear to be, uh, you know, impermeable? And how would the next steps happen where things would actually come to life? Like what is... You know, you're getting closer, it sounds like, but what is the, uh, the thing that is, makes the border of life and non-life? Yeah, that's what we're trying to figure out right now, in fact. So we got a kind of little menu of uh, what should happen in the steps toward uh, life. First thing is, of course, you make polymers. The next thing is they get surrounded by a membrane, so you have a protocell. But the membrane is fairly unstable. These just like little soap-like molecules. And you know that soap bubbles are unstable. These membranes are like that as well. So the very first step toward life is to stabilize the membranes. So our guess now is, this is all speculation, our guess is that the polymers can bind to the interior of the membranes and, and have a stabilizing effect. And in fact, life today has polymers on the inside of cells, we call it the cytoskeleton, and one of its purposes is to stabilize the membrane. So that's step number one. Step number two is there is a barrier between the inside of the cell and the outside, and there has to be some way to make a pore through that barrier. But we have found, and others have as well, that peptides can penetrate the membrane and produce a, a pore through the membrane through which ions can move and other solutes um, such as uh, amino acids, for example, and nucleotides. So that would be the next step in this uh, step toward life. So you see, one, one step at a time, we're moving toward life by spontaneous things. Nothing is making this happen. There's no driving force other than the fact that this is possible, so it does happen. But now we get into the next step, which is the most important step, really. And that is, how did metabolism begin? And there we're really speculating. This is just guesswork. We imagine that some of those polymers have catalytic activity. And we know this can happen. Uh, catalytic activity is a very simple thing to uh, get started. And lots of things are catalysts. So there's no reason why these polymers, some of them at least, could, could have uh, catalytic activity. Uh, so these then will be selected because they're doing some useful function for the cell beyond uh, stabilizing and making pores in the membrane. They're actually starting to capture chemical energy and using that chemical energy in a primitive form of metabolism. And at that point, we're at the end of our knowledge. We really don't know how that works yet. That's a uh, very active area of research. Lots of people are trying to figure that out, and so are we. Has anyone tried to take apart 
uh, or find maybe the simplest form of life possible and maybe slowly take things out of that, you know, that cell, whatever it is, archaea, et cetera, and see when it ceases to appear to be alive. Yeah, that's right. That is happening. We have two approaches. We call it uh, bottom-up, which is what I've just talked about, where you start with simple things and make them more complex. And the other approach is top-down. You start with something that's alive, and you try to subtract one thing after another to see the minimal form of life. Uh, there's a guy named Craig Venter, and uh, he's a very well-known scientist. He's got his own institute down in the San Diego area, and he has been trying step-by-step with his colleagues down there to subtract genes from something that's alive. So one by one, it's possible with modern molecular biological techniques to knock out specific genes that make specific proteins. So Craig has managed to make what right now at least is the simplest form of life. It only has a few hundred genes and it is a cell. It has ribosomes, and some of those genes are responsible for making the ribosomes that in turn make RNA. And this simplest form of life is, in fact, right now our limit from the top-down approach. That's as far as we've gotten toward the very simplest living organism. But you know, life didn't start that way. Life had no way to make several hundred genes just from scratch. So there must have been a starting point where Evolution took over, selection and evolution, and these very simple protocells became increasingly complex over a period of something like 100 million years to the point where they reached this very simple form of life that we call the last universal common ancestor, L-U-C-A. We call it LUCA. At that point, life had begun on the earth, life as we know it. Everything that was needed for life today was present in a very simple bacterium that we actually have a fossil record of it, something like three and a half billion years old. Well, that is that simple LUCA compared to what uh, Craig Venter is making. Is it a lot less complicated, a lot more? I would, say, I would say that uh, Craig's uh, simplest form of life is uh, heading downhill toward LUCA. And, uh, you know, he might have made a version of LUCA to think of it. I hadn't thought of that before. That's a good point. So, you know, if I uh, have a chance to talk to a venture, I will ask him whether he thinks this might be an equivalent of LUCA. I don't know myself. But do we have something in the fossil record, an actual fossil, that shows uh, perhaps what, what LUCA might have been? And are you able to get any information about the molecules that constituted it or their structure from the fossil? Or is it mostly degraded? Actually, there's a part of Australia that I was in about two or three summers ago. And uh, a trip was led by uh, Malcolm Walter, who is at uh, the University of New South Wales in, in uh, Sydney. And Martin Van Krenendonk was along, and he was uh, sort of a scientific guide. And uh, we have now started a collaboration with uh, Martin that is ongoing right now. And I was down in Australia just in February. Uh, not March and February, uh, January and February, visiting Martin and giving some talks down there that have come out of this collaboration. So they have discovered in por- a tiny portion of Western Australia called the Pilbara, which is a very ancient three and a half billion year old rocks there uh, that is left over from a period of time 
that Luca was in fact alive and, and thriving in a, uh, a marine environment, but also now we know some freshwater uh, going on there. And there are fossils there called stromatolites. And we know that stromatolites are produced by bacterial films that grow on mineral surfaces and then make one layer after another, after another. And a stroma, in fact, is a, uh, I think a Greek word for layer. So stromatolite is a rock, rocky material that has layered minerals on it. And we know that that's a result of mineralization by these uh, bacterial films that were live three and a half billion years ago. There are also rocks there that have been uh, broken open and cut into very thin slices for microscopic examination. And it's generally agreed now that we are seeing fossilized microbes from three and a half billion years ago that uh, in fact were uh, the Lucas of that time. Well, how similar are these fossils to modern day bacteria or archaea? Can you tell like how much can be told from their fossils? Well, all that's left over is a sort of a shadow of the original organism. You don't really see any molecules in there because they've just all been replaced by the uh, uh, mineralization process that fossils go through. But what we do see is carbon that is left over from the life forms back then. That carbon then is sort of a blackish uh, brown material that you can see in the microscope. Uh, Bill Schaaf down at UCLA uh, was one of the leaders in this field uh, uh, who was among the first people to, to uh, recognize that those are in fact uh, fossils of uh, microscopic life. Oh, okay, so how can you recognize that these are actual fossils of of bacteria, can you see structure? If you can't see any particular compounds, I mean, what can be seen? What we can see is the cell wall. The, uh, everything that uh, in the way of uh, microbial populations, most of them have a cell wall that protects them uh, because you know the, the membrane itself is very floppy, very loose and fragile. So most bacteria today will have a cell wall. And that's really what is left over from these early forms of life, a cell wall, and those cell walls then uh, often form little strings. And bacteria today come in little strings of individual uh, bacteria that are attached together in a long thread-like structure. So we can see that much, but we don't see any DNA, we don't see any protein. We might see a little bit of phosphate in some of these left over from the nucleic acids, because nucleic acids, of course, have a lot of phosphate. In them. So what's, um, how are you going to take what's, what's been made you know, in the lab or observed in these, uh, in these geysers or these hot pools and step it forward and try to get metabolism going? I guess Craig Venter is trying to take it backwards, but you're trying to step it forward. Like what, what's next for you? We have one idea that we're tracking. We haven't set it up yet, but I'm happy to share it with anybody who wants to try it. Uh, if if life passed through what we call an RNA world, in which RNA, or at least nucleic acids, a mixture of RNA and DNA is one idea that's around now. If these uh, pass through a very simple form of uh, life, we know that RNA can be catalytic. These are called ribozymes. And when they were discovered back in the early 1980s and named ribozymes, uh, people immediately jump to the conclusion that maybe the simplest form of life used ribozymes 
without any DNA and without any proteins, uh, just an RNA-based life form, because they were catalysts. And we now know that they can even be uh, what we call polymerases. They can make more RNA from starting uh, mononucleotides. So uh, these ribonucleotides uh, and uh, the ribozymes that uh, compose them uh, form this early form of life. And we think that we can, might be able to see a catalytic effect in some of the long RNA molecules that we're making uh, in the laboratory. And the way we can test for that is to put them into lipid vesicles and then add a substrate for the ribozyme catalytic activity that produces a fluorescent product. That fluorescent product will accumulate in the vesicle and we will be able to fish out that vesicle and amplify whatever was in it and maybe find a shortcut to a catalytic RNA that we think might have been around on the early Earth. So that's just an idea. It's got to be tested, and uh, that's uh, that's on our to-do list. So, what's um, do you think that uh, this is going to be figured out, and that this is actually how life started, and you'll figure out the point where the I guess the spark of life happens, what makes something alive, or what are your thoughts looking forward, and what you'll figure out? Well, keep in mind that uh, maybe a hundred. Uh, scientists worldwide are actively engaged in this. And we get together at uh, every couple of years at a Gordon conference on the origin of life. There's just a few hundred people that come from all over the world. So this is not a big field like uh, cancer research or cardiovascular research where you have tens of thousands of scientists working. So this small group of people uh, know each other pretty well. We pay attention to each other's research and we publish in the same magazines, uh, journals, and so forth. So the point that I'm making is that it's not just one person that's, that's doing all this work. It's not just us. We're working with dozens of others in collaborations all around the world, and we all have the same goal, which is to understand how life began. And we all understand that we don't know much yet. We don't know enough yet to say that we know how life began, but we do know how to take these step-by-step-by-step -step -step, uh, experiments that lead toward a, a basic understanding. So I would say that um, uh, there's a few people. One of these is uh, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Jer uh, Jerry Joyce, down at, um, in San Diego, at UC San Diego. He's at the Salk Institute now. And uh, he's very interested. He can get ribozymes to evolve. Another is uh, Jack Silverstack. And Jack is back at Harvard, and he's hard at work trying to synthesize a, a sort of a laboratory version of life, starting with very simple molecules. So these are examples of people working in this field, trying to uh, make this uh, incremental progress toward understanding how life could begin. Is there a name for the group of approximately 100 scientists that are working on this? Is it just origins of life scientists? Or, or you know, do you have a meetup? Or what are they called? How can people find out more? Yeah, there's a, uh, every three years, there's a meeting called ISSOL, I-S-S-O-L, and that's the International Society for the Study of the Origin of Life. And we get together, as I said, every three years all over the world, and about 500 people show up for a typical meeting. We give talks and uh, trade ideas and so forth, so it's uh, a lot of fun uh, to get together at these meetings. 
Another one is sponsored by NASA because NASA kind of invented a new field called astrobiology. And astrobiology has as a smaller subsection of it how life began, but it has a larger aim to discover whether there is life elsewhere. And our target right now is Mars. We think it's possible that life could have begun Mars. And there's some icy moons out there like Enceladus and Europa that uh, actually have liquid water. We know that for a fact. They have oceans under an ice covering. So there are some uh, missions uh, being planned by NASA to send, uh, send spacecraft to these icy moons and see whether we can get evidence for life there. So if you ask me to say what I am right now, I suppose I'm an astrobiologist because I work with meteorites and uh, have uh, done experiments with stuff from outer space. I'm very interested in whether life could exist on Mars and NASA is providing uh, money for that. And uh, in Japan, another funding is uh, providing uh, money for the Japanese missions to uh, Hayabasu, for instance, and the comets. And then uh, we have uh, in Europe, the European Space Agency, and they are sending uh, missions off that would be considered astrobiological. So uh, it's a global effort right now to see how life began on Earth, whether life could begin elsewhere, elsewhere, and whether we can actually discover life out there in the rest of the universe. Very good. Well, David, what's the best way for people interested to learn more? Should they look at ISSL? Should they uh, find your particular publications? What do you recommend? Now, astrobiology is a portion of NASA. And if you go to the NASA websites and just search for astrobiology, you will come up with uh, probably a dozen places in the U.S. where work is being done. And uh, the work is published in a journal called Astrobiology. It comes out every month. And you can find it at uh, um, major libraries associated with uh, academic research. Uh, so that would be another place where you can read it. And the uh, most exciting papers are usually published in Nature and in Science. Uh, these are the places where uh, people kind of compete to get their papers published. So you can just search uh, on the internet for uh, astrobiology or origins of life research, and then you will find um, listed the exciting papers and news items having to do with how life began. Well, very good. Well, David, fascinating subject. Um, I hope it gets figured out soon, more progress is made. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Very happy to meet you. and. Uh, uh, I'll look forward to uh, uh, what comes about our, out of our interaction today. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.